Good morning, New Life. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Prez. And if you are joining us for the first time, thanks for worshiping with us. We're glad that you're here. Hopefully we can get to know one another after the service. So stick around if you're able to. We are continuing along in a series looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And today I'm going to essentially speak from the entirety of chapter 19, at least most of it, but for the sake of time, I'm going to read the main section of, my, of the point of today's message here, which is Genesis 19, 23 to 29. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. Genesis 19, this is the judgment of God against this well-known city called Sodom. <clears throat> Verse 23 to 29, uh, this is God's word, so please give your, your open hearts and your minds to the Lord speaking to us today. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind them looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And this is God's word. You can go ahead and take your seats. <clears throat> well, this is a, a difficult passage. If you have ever read Genesis 19, if you've grown up in the church, you sort of know that there's this stigma with this city, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a culture and society that has really reached the bottom of human depravity. And there's sins, there's, there's injustice, and there's a brokenness within the city. It's a difficult passage. It's a dark passage. It's full of injustice and abuse, corruption and sin. But... One of the reasons that I think Genesis 19 is in this passage is because it's, it shows us that Christianity, perhaps more than any other religion, is honest about the world we live in. It's realistic about the brokenness and injustice that we see in this world because Genesis 19 may reflect the society and world in which we live in because the world we live in is also full of injustice, corruption, abuse, and sin. And so my goal here for this message today is to look at what I think is the central point of this passage, which is this idea that you and I as individual Western people really don't like in our heart of hearts, and it's this concept, this idea of judgment. No one likes to be judged. You don't like to be assessed, evaluated, and even Christianity is often criticized, and sometimes rightfully so, of being too judgmental even too bigoted, too narrow-minded in the way that we hold our convictions, but more importantly, how we communicate those convictions to the world and society. We don't like to be judged. We don't like the idea of judgment. But what this passage shows us is that judgment is actually something good if it's understood properly and applied lovingly. It shows us that judgment is unavoidable and that no matter what, every culture, every society, every human being has some sort of mechanism in which they assess and judge one another. So my hope here is to really get at what a book that I just recently read by Rebecca McLaughlin, where she wrote this book called 
confronting Christianity, 12 hard questions about the world's largest religion. And she writes in this book, and I'm trying to bring this out in Genesis 19, about how the Bible gives us this really strange tale in which judgment and love mutually inform one another and are intertwined, and it informs our vague ideas about heaven and hell as it roots these ideas of judgment and love in a person named Jesus. Because most people oftentimes pit judgment and love against one another. And if you're a skeptic of Christianity, you're saying, how can a Christian God be both love but also judge people and pour out his wrath? But what I'm going to try to show you in Genesis 19 is that God judges precisely because he is love. And what informs the judgment of God is this really love for beauty and wholeness and human flourishing and an idea in which the society of God's people and even in the culture should really promote a peace and prosperity because God wants that and loves people so much, he's going to judge sin and injustice. So I'm going to look at God's judgment with you here today along three essential people. One, we'll look at the judgment of God against Sodom as a city and a culture. Secondly, we'll look at the judgment against Lot's wife, which is this weird verse where she turns into a pillar of salt and what in the world is going on there. And then thirdly, we'll look at the judgment of Lot, but recognize that his judgment to Lot is placed on someone else because Lot was saved. And so let's look at this. A tough passage, but it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful passage. But let's look at the judgment against Sodom. Now, if you remember the story, God heard these cries because people were hurting. It was cries of pain, cries of evil. God comes down and says, let me investigate. And before he can go down to Sodom and investigate, Abraham, as this priest steps in and says, whoa, God, let me appeal to your justice here. And he says, would you still kill and destroy Sodom if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom? And God says, for 10 righteous people, I would spare the city of Sodom. And then God ended the conversation and he walked away. Now we're going to see what happens here. Are there 10 righteous people or are there not? Well, let me give you the punchline. God destroyed Sodom. And we have to discover together, why did God do this? God heard the cries. He went down to investigate. These are two heavenly beings described as men. They walk over to Lot's house, and they're discovering, and they concluded that all the evil and all the trouble and all the pain and all the, the sin and corruption and abuse and injustice that they, God heard from the cries of the people were in fact true, so God destroyed the city of Sodom. Read with me verses 24 to 25. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and, the valley, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So he destroyed everything, even that little note, what grew on the ground, is trying to tell you the totality of God's judgment of this city on Sodom. Here's where I want to discuss with you what was so bad about Sodom. What was so sinful and debased about this culture and this society that God had destroyed the city and all its inhabitants, really a doctrine that seems archaic to a modern person like you and me, but destroyed it so comprehensively that even the vegetation on the ground was eradicated. Let me try to show you why God, showed, why God judged Sodom. Typically, Sodom is associated with sexual perversion and sin and homosexual acts. And that's definitely a sin that's highlighted in this passage. But really, that homosexual activity is really a, a deep sin 
that is part of a greater profile of really the culture of Sodom. It wasn't just that as to why God punished and destroyed them. That was just one significant singled out sin of a greater profile of how bad this culture can be. Read with me Ezekiel 16.49. This is talking about Ezekiel is talking to the church, but he's referencing Sodom, and this is what he says. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, a prosperous ease, comfort and materialism, but did not aid the poor and needy. And Ezekiel is saying that's the guilt of Sodom, social justice. They were not generous. They were corrupt. They didn't help the poor. They had so much wealth and materialism, but they didn't help those who were needy. And Ezekiel saying this to Israel and saying, this is why your sister Sodom, this other city, was condemned, and that's why they were guilty. In our passage, if you read verse 9, this weird sentence, this is why in 19, it highlights a different sin. In verse 5, it says, they called to Lot, what are the men who came to you tonight? Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And in verse 5 of this passage, that word know dictates physical intimacy. Now, that's pretty clear-cut. It's not they want to have a chit-chat. It's a weird, depraved passage. The men from young and old, it says all the inhabitants of Sodom, they went over to Lot's house and say, hey, Lot, you got two strangers in there. Bring them out so that we can know them. That word know conveys homosexual activity. And that's also a part of the reason why God condemned this city. And he destroyed the city out of his holiness and his judgment. But here's the thing, friends. It's a profile of a debased, depra- depraved culture and people. Ezekiel says Sodom were destroyed because they didn't help the poor. Genesis 19 highlights abuse and oppression and homosexual activity. It's all wrapped up into one complex of a people who were rebellious and neglected God. And if you think about this, and if you think about today's culture, these two sins in which Sodom were destroyed, they really tend towards really our political climate. Because usually those who are a little bit more progressive, they really like to emphasize, we got to help the poor, we got to help the marginalized, we have to help those who are needy. We kind of tend, if you're a little bit left of center, approaching these issues with the gospel, aiming towards some version of social justice, which we see in the Bible is absolutely clear and true. We have to repent of those sins where we're not really advocates and agents of really God's justice in this culture. And those actually who tend to really highlight and center on the idea of heterosexual monogamous marriage between man and woman, because that is God's design, that tends to be those who are right of center. That's why the Bible, they always say, is scandalous. It offends everyone. Because if you're not really thinking about justice and equality, and if you're not really thinking about those who are marginalized, God is rebuking you say, you need to repent of your sin. But also in this day and age, when we have such an important doctrine about marriage, it also condemns really homosexual activity. But this is what I want to share. This is what I want to dig into. That's just sort of the cold-hearted intellectual perspective about why God in his holiness condemned the city of Sodom, whether it's going to be marginalized poor or whether it's going to be about heterosexual monogamous marriage. Let's look at this a little bit deeper. I'm going to try to bring this case out and then have a couple of words for the church before we move on to our second point. The main point and the main sin highlighted in Genesis 19 is not going to be about helping the needy and poor. It is about physical intimacy and sexual perversion. 
And it's not just Genesis 19 that wants to condemn this sin. If you look at other parts of the Old Testament, you could read Leviticus 18.22. Here, actually, the punishment for homosexual activity back in the Old Testament was going to be uh, death. And it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Those are very strong words. And some people say, well, that's Old Testament. You know, the New Testament, it's about grace and truth, and we include everyone. In some ways, that's absolutely true. But Jesus, when you look at when he talks about marriage, he's actually stricter than the Old Testament. Because in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus affirms God's original design that marriage is between man and woman, a heterosexual monogamous marriage, a one-flesh design for marriage, but he's even stricter on divorce. He's saying you can only get a divorce in very specific circumstances. And he says that marriage is something that reflects Jesus and the church, and that's why it's so important. So Jesus, in some ways, is stricter than the Old Testament. And then you look at the Apostle Paul when he talks about this. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. And he says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so you can see that there's a consistency in the message of the Bible with the sin that's singled out in Genesis 19. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is talking to his disciple. He's saying to Timothy, you're going to be a leader among leaders in this Asia Minor, among the churches in Ephesus. And what does he say in chapter 1, verse 10? The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So clearly the message and the teaching of the Bible in the sort of cold-hearted, calculated, but essentially foundational and true is that homosexuality is going to be something that is contrary to God's will as revealed in the Bible. It is something that the Bible will call sin, and literally it's written in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 that it will not, these are listed contrary to the will of God, but also will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the phrase, here's the catch, friends. Right after Paul lists in chapter 1, verse 10, all these sins that are contrary to the Bible, he talks about himself in verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this is what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. And I think that's the heart posture that the church has to take. We could be clear and steadfast on these points of doctrine, but the key is to be humble and to be loving in the way that we apply this. Because Paul lists all these bad qualities and all these sins in chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 Timothy. But then he says, I'm worse than all these people. I'm worse than the sexually immoral. I'm worse than the men who practice homosexuality. I'm worse than the enslavers and the liars and perjurers. And he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the Holy Spirit has convicted Paul's heart to say, I am actually worse in my heart and sin. Even in Ezekiel, when he can, Ezekiel condemns and says, your sister, city, Sodom, they were guilty because of social justice. They didn't help out the poor. In chapter 16 of Ezekiel, verse 47, the prophet also says this, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than in all your ways. So here's the thing, friends. With all these sins that are highlighted in Genesis 19, 
We admit that it's a sin. It's contrary to God's design. But the Apostle Paul himself and then Ezekiel to the church represented by Old Testament Israel were saying, you guys were worse. And part of that is something that we got to hear. It's not really something that's quantitative. It's not going to be something that's really on a measuring scale, but it's really the heart of this to say it's so easy to criticize and lambast other people, but both in 1 Timothy as well as Ezekiel is saying with all this corruption and all this sin, even what we see in Genesis 19 is telling the church, you're worse. Don't think you're better. The same essence of sin that we see in this culture of Sodom, that sin resides in your heart. You're actually condemned in the same way. Sure, the expression of it could be different. Sure, the context and circumstances are different. But whenever you really understand the doctrines of grace and sin, it should humble us to be steadfast on the points of doctrine, but also loving, gentle, patient with those who struggle with certain types of sins. The heart of sin, the wave and the current of sin, runs through all of us, friends. So no matter what your positions are, no matter what fires you up, whether it's just injustice and social justice, or whether it's going to be really more conservative issues where it deals with marriage, whatever you actually are fired up by, it should be a fire for holiness and a fire that's undergirded by humility. Because it was, who was it, Alexander Solzhenitsyn? He once said this when he was writing a, a sort of a dialogue about himself. He said, gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And that is what the gospel is telling us, to humble ourselves as we take a stance on important issues, but still are able to love people who are different from us because Jesus calls us to love him and love one another. Jesus scandalizes everyone. He condemns all sexual sin. He condemns those who struggle with pornography and said that actually has a detrimental effect upon culture and society in ways that we can't even imagine. So he says, before you take out the speck in someone else's eye, look at the log in your own. Because by Jesus' definition, he's saying the essence of sin, like Solzhenitsyn says, runs through all of our hearts. And by Jesus' definition, all of us are guilty of not being more gracious to the poor, and all of us are guilty of some version of sexual perversion, and sin. All of us probably need to repent of the sins that we commit, but also perhaps many of us need to repent of our unbiblical attitudes towards others that we think are worse than us. Before we go to our second point, now how can the Christian God condemn and judge actually Sodom in the way that it does? How can the Christian God be both a God of judgment but also a God of love? Let me just sprinkle some thoughts out of here. The truth is, the more loving you are, the more judgmental you should be. Because judgment, which comes out in anger and wrath, is really stemming from and flows out of love. In other words, friends, true love always gets angry. Anger and judgment is love in motion toward a threat of something that you actually love. So something that you love is really threatened, you get angry at it, you want justice for it, you judge that thing that's threatening what you love. Anger pulverizes, it disintegrates. 
It disintegrates the thing that's endangering the very thing that you love. Anger is nothing but love in motion when someone or something you love is under threat. Do you know who the angriest person is? Do you know who the most judgmental person is in this world? Jesus. He stands in tears of judgment and anger against evil and death when he resurrects Lazarus and he has compassion with his sisters. Jesus loves people. He loves life. He loves peace. He loves justice. He hates suffering, he hates death, and he hates injustice. That's why his love undergirds and motivates his judgment and anger, because he doesn't want people to be victims. He doesn't want people to be hurt. He doesn't want suffering and natural and death to really be the dominant theme of life and society. That's why judgment and love, as Rebecca McLaughlin says, are intertwined in this strange tale that centers upon Jesus, because Jesus, who absolutely loved you and me, gives us his love on the cross, but to give it to us, he had to suffer the judgment for your sin and mine upon God the Father who judged him and by pouring out his wrath upon Jesus so that we may receive love. The more loving you are, the more graciously judgmental you could be. Gracious, patient, other-centered. Jesus loves you so much that he went under judgment for your sins and mine. And Christianity is the only God that intertwines, both in history but doctrinally, this idea of love and judgment that harmonizes perfectly upon the cross. And that's the first thing that we can consider about judgment. But secondly, let's switch gears a little bit, because the sexual perversion, it's not the only sin in the passage. Let's look at Lot's wife. It's a really weird verse, but let me say this. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, there's a lot of weird things in the Old Testament. Let me try to break down what I think may have happened here with Lot's wife. I think the first thing is that she disobeyed God's command, because whenever you disobey God's command, they call that sin. God told her in verse 17, don't look back. Verse 26, she looked back, and then she was punished and turned into a pillar of salt. How in the world did this happen? Well, I think some of us, when I read this passage, some of you may be like me, we think she sort of turned into salt instantaneously, like the movie Frozen. You know, all of a sudden, instantaneous conversion to ice. I don't know, because the verses here don't really tell us if it was a process of turning into salt or is it instantaneous. But the most commonly accepted naturalistic explanation of this is that if you look at the history books, Sodom was part of the Jordan Valley, which they say, according to the geologists and geographers, was part and situated on this great opening rift. And it was, the history books say there was common earthquakes that happened along where Sodom was located. And when the earthquakes happened, it released all these gases that ignited the sulfur and petroleum and started a fire. That's why you could say that God judged this through the earthquakes, created sulfur and fire, and destroyed the city. The point is that God was in control and he still sent this judgment, but that's the naturalistic explanation. So even though we may picture frozen and an instantaneous conversion of salt, really what possible hypothesis about this is that it was a gradual conversion to salt, that perhaps Lot's wife, who doesn't have a name by the way, was sort of suffocated and passed out because of the sulfurous gases, and as she laid there, she was encrusted by the atmosphere in the ground and salt from the earthquakes. And maybe that's kind of what happened. Either way, the point is this. She disobeyed God, and then God, out of his holiness, holiness, judged her. What was her sin? I think maybe it was this. 
She disobeyed God, but what was really her sin? Why did she look back as she was leaving Sodom and she just kind of looked back? Well, this is the best case I can make. I think according to one commentator, Bruce Walkie, she looked back because she physically left Sodom, but her heart wanted to return. Return to what? Return to her possessions. Return to what Sodom represented, her materialism, her wealth, comfort. You know, Lot actually was somebody who built a level of reputation in Sodom. That's why he was in the front gates, and only important people were at the gate. So they're saying that probably she looked back because that was a life that she wanted and her heart wanted to return to that. Power, success, comfort, reputation. Lot was probably respected. Remember Lot, Lot's wife, maybe the warning for you and I here today. Because we live in a culture that you and I have so much wealth and so much materialism. And that's what I think that Lot's wife was judged for, was her idolatry of stuff. They say in this one article, materialism is essentially the idol of stuff. This one pastor, John Satema, he writes about in his church where a young couple in his congregation had the privilege and blessing to adopt twin Romanian boys. And when they went over to Romania and Eastern Europe, there was a guy that they called Mr. Black. They couldn't pronounce his last name, so they called him Mr. Black. And he says, Mr. Black was so essential and so helpful through the adoption process. But when Mr. Black came back to America to this young couple's house and visited the culture of Western society, this is what he said. You have so many things here that you don't need. Look at all the pictures on your walls, the things on your tables, the chairs you don't sit in, the clothes you don't wear. Because for Mr. Black, you see, wealth was measured by utility in his culture. And if one has more than what you really need, everyone is going to be wealthy. And this article, he goes on to say, these are some of the symptoms of the culture you and I live, to say that be careful of falling into the idolatry of stuff because our culture is built on this love of materialism. And this is what he says, at least for sprinkling thoughts about the context that we're in. He says, the health of our economy is oftentimes measured by consumer spending, not consumer saving. Success, in most people's minds, is measured by accumulation and possession of things. Ethics are shaped by goals and not absolute standards. Things are marks of success. Accumulation is good. Workaholism is an accepted lifestyle. Never mind the cost to marriage or family. As long as you accumulate more, you're doing well in life. There's a pervasive dissatisfaction with one's lot in life fueled by infomercials and social media, promising easy ways to get rich through real estate, through thin diet fads, gimmicks, and smarts, intelligence, and education through video courses. The word greed no longer connotes a sinful spirit. It's something that's accepted. We even replace it with things such as profit motivation. In many cities, police reports that youth kill each other and beat each other up to get the next pair of Air Jordans. Consistently, we like shows like Million Dollar Listing, which I do like that show if you've ever seen it. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. They lure large TV audiences. And if I could be humble or be honest with you up here, I'm not standing up here to say that you guys are materialistic and I'm not. I'm right there with you on this struggle of materialism and an idolatry of stuff. Just love stuff. But here's the thing. This is the tricky thing about potentially what Lot's wife, her sin was about materialism and the idol of stuff. Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, wrote an article about materialism. 
And she's insightfully said this. I'm summarizing some of her thoughts. She says, materialism doesn't just express itself in the desire for an enormous quantity or actually superb quality by locating happiness in the things of the world, then you know you actually are someone who struggles with the sin of materialism. It's not that you have to be the richest, have more. Materialism and the idol of stuff is basically saying you can have a little, but you find your identity and your happiness in a little. You may have no craving for the highest fashion designers or the best jewelry or the cars or yachts or other symbols of elite status. You don't care about any of this, but ask yourself this question. How much of my contentment is based in this world providing me with more stuff, fitting into my size six clothes, being able to take the family out to Shake Shack without counting the pennies, the affection of a nice pet, not losing the light from the view of the windows because there's a new building that's blocking them because you have a good sight from your condominium. Losing such comfort, she says, will always create a degree of regret. But if losing such comforts overthrow your happiness, she writes, you are a materialist. Materialism simply means that your happiness, joy, contentment, and satisfaction is tied to something in this material world. A salary, however small, status, however low, possessions, however modest, if they are the source of your contentment and happiness, if your hearts are constructed around more things, remember Lot's wife. This morning, somebody sent me this article. It was a study by a couple of Princeton seminary, not seminary, Princeton uh, University professors and University of Pennsylvania professors, Nobel laureates, and they did this landmark study in 2010, and they revised it a little bit with this conclusion. And in this study, remember, non-Christian, just academics, Nobel laureates, they're saying the key point of your income at $75,000 a year, they're saying that is the point in which if you make more, it doesn't alleviate your unhappiness. Does that make sense? Because some people, some of you think, I'm so unhappy, if I just made more, it would alleviate some of my miseries. But they're concluding that this income threshold of 75000 may represent the point beyond which miseries that remain will not go away. Heartbreak, bereavement, clinical depression, are such examples of this bereavement. They're not going to go away. Materialism. The reason is because what God is showing us in Lot's wife is that as strong as materialism is, the true joy and satisfaction, the longing of your heart, is the riches that you have in a relationship with God secured for you by Jesus Christ. Remember Lot's wife, friends. She represents a very stark and honest in hard conversation about the things in this world, remember Lot's wife. That pushes us to look at Lot's husband. Let's look at Lot. So God judged Sodom. God judged Lot's wife. Let's look at Lot. Lot made it. Somehow he made it out of the city. Look at verse 19. Read that together. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown... And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. So he made it. He's saying your favor has found, your, your servant has found favor in your sight. 
Now, let's look at Lot because this is a funny thing. This is why Christianity, they say grace is scandalous. If anyone should have been condemned, it seems like Lot should have been. Now, Lot, they say, his sins were as bad as the Sodomites because Lot, he was facing this predicament that he had guessed. And by the way, in the ancient Near Eastern context, laws of hospitality were really strong. It's different. It's a concept that you and I can't understand here today. But Lot was back there, and he was hiding two strangers. He wanted to be honorable to the laws of hospitality. Then, as we said, all the men and women, I mean, all the men, young and old, came around, and they wanted to know these two men. So he had a choice. What did Lot decide to do? He offered his two daughters to be abused. I mean, if that isn't a picture of abuse and objectification, if that's not a picture of debased human depravity, then I don't know what is. In order to save himself, in order to protect his guests, he was willing to use his daughters and give them up and to relinquish all that the father is called to do. Do you know why? Because Lot's greatest problem was this. Lot's greatest problem wasn't that he was living in a sinful city like Sodom. His greatest problem was that the sinful city of Sodom lived in him. The values and the culture of Sodom lived in Lot. It dictated his aspirations, his thoughts. There's a lot of redemptive things about Lot, but the reason that he was in so much trouble was not because that he lived in Sodom, but that Sodom lived in him, lived in his heart. But he was saved. If one commentator says Lot's sin is arguably worse than the Sodomites, in their sexual perversion of homosexual, if Lot actually is a heterosexual man, his sin was worse than actually the Sodomites, how was he saved? That's the scandal of Jesus Christ. He says to the worst of sinners, you can be saved. You can make it. Not by your own efforts, but if you cry out for mercy and confess your sin, Jesus says, I'll come for you. I'll redeem you. I'll save you. You can be saved. Why was Lot saved? Because of another man named Abraham. Look at verse 29. It says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which he had lived. God saved Lot because God remembered Abraham. That's the picture of the gospel. Lot, Sodomites, his wife, you and me, we can be saved. Now, if Solzhenitsyn's right that the current of evil and sin runs through the heart of every human being, how do you get by? How do you make it? Because of someone else, someone greater than Abraham. We're saved because of the righteousness of who Abraham pointed towards, which is going to be Jesus Christ. That's the scandal of the gospel. That's why when you look at Lot, he has some redeeming points. He wanted to be hospitable. He was honorific. But yeah, he, he wanted to give up his daughters. He was sacrificing. He's, he's just a mess. And this is the picture. Lot is you and me. Lot, because we have good things about us, but we also have bad things about us. I mean, they always say, if you had a transcript of your thoughts in the past 24 hours, none of us would have any friends. A transcript of your thoughts. Because they say in our day and age, that you have to be you. You be you, your authentic self. And we say that we want to be known. Lot shows us that we can be known, but this is what's different. In our culture, it says we want to be known, but it doesn't really work because if you have people who are unjust or people who are abusers, and if they're saying, I want to be my authentic self and I want to be who I'm called to be while I'm hurting other people, we can't just stand back and say, you be you. You could be your authentic self as you 
hurt and abuse other people. We can't do that. The only way that Christianity offers something very unique because it says just like Lot, to be authentically yourself means that you take the good, but also you have to take the bad. Now, there's this tattoo on this one, this barber, uh, in a book that I read. It says this one, like, hairstylist had his tattoo, and it says, if you can't handle my worst, then you don't deserve my best. Because that's a cry to be known and loved. And if you want to be known, truly free and truly loved, that means you have to know the good and the bad. Because Lot, he made it. He was known for his good, but seen for his bad, but he was saved through another. And the only way that you and I can be our authentic selves, to be fully known and fully loved, because that desire is within us, is only going to be through the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which they know the deepest sins of your heart, the brokenness of your heart, the bad thoughts of your head, of your memories, but you could be fully accepted and loved by Jesus Christ. See, in Jesus, he pursues us, he pursues you and me, not like criminals, but like wanted children because his wrath has been replaced by love and desire. And if we were united to Jesus, just like in some ways Lot was united to Abraham, that means our lives are contingent upon God's life. Our love is contingent upon God's love. Our desires and wills and choices are contingent upon God's will and choices. Now, Rebecca McLaughlin, when she wrote this book that I read, she was pregnant, I think, with her third child, and she says, maybe pregnancy is going to be that illustration for you. She says, a child in the womb is truly alive, but that baby